You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Madeline Habib, 54 years it's taken her to get an office or desk job and it's brought COVID-19 to bring that change about. Usually she's on the front line of humanitarian aid or environmental activism for big NGOs. It has been in the last 25 years or 25 plus years. Today we get to hear her story and how she's handled that change and what she sees into the future. But before we get any further, I just wanted to flag that Joe's audio will sound very similar to Madeline's, who's based in Tasmania. Usually Joe and I will be chatting together in the same studio, but due to lockdown for restrictions, Joe and I are recording out of different offices. Um, as of next week, it will be back on part. Joe will be recording out of his, and we'll be stitching it together and continuing to give you great conversations inspirational conversations and insightful ones so bear with us now joe what were some of the key take-homes that you took from this conversation with madeline oh look i mean i think you know i guess i'm, I'm struck with two things um pat i think the the first is kind of this this idea of kind of um you know madeline kind of um trying to find a way through through volunteering so this idea that kind of anything is actually actually possible as long as you keep um kind of pushing and actually trying to try to find solutions. So, you know, I kind of have two images in my head out of the conversation. And that's one, you know, her kind of when she was younger in Tassie trying to protect um, forests and try to find a solution to that by actually kind of putting car uh, an old car onto a bridge, I think is something that'll stick with me. And the and the second the second thing I really took out of our conversation is just her her approach and I think her um, her positivity about the difference that an individual as well as kind of a younger generation can actually actually make. So, you know, she touches a lot on kind of the, the idea of maritime community that I don't think many people understand and also the role that um, one, we as individuals will have, but also um, at a wider scale, how when we actually come together into kind of um, small collectives that are focused on things, the difference that we can actually make. So she's an incredible lady. And, uh, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed the conversation that we had with her. Yeah, it was a beautiful conversation and her dedication really just rings true, like looking at her story online, looking at her story, different ways she communicated today. Um, she's one of the first maritime uh, masters of her gender, unfortunately, to captain a lot of ships. So she's got a clear vision and really and really follows it through and loves to channel it and it's just status quo and it's the individuals like that I think a lot of change, um, good change can be accredited to. And hearing her talk about that individual level as an agent of great change was really refreshing, I suppose, from someone who's come from 25 plus years in an NGO setting um, at a big setting and understanding, I suppose, how um, non-government organisations also fall into the traps of becoming quite bureaucratic corporations um, and, and can look after themselves, which they rightfully so do, but also the power that an individual has. And I think it's poignant for now. In the setting we're all facing, I'm sure listening to this, um, resetting in COVID-19 and where we want to head and where we want to focus our energies, I think this podcast and Madeline's story is a great a great thing to put in your ears. 100%. And, uh, you know, it's uh, as, as Madeline pointed out, it's, uh, it's really, really great that kind of, you know, one of the things that... Um, you know, obviously COVID is stopping is not just the supply chain of kind of goods and the the free kind of movement of people. It's also about maintaining our ability to keep the free exchange of ideas alive. So, um, yeah, on that note, uh, here's Madeline. 
I'm Madeline Habib, and today I'm in Hobart, Tasmania, sitting in my newly um, appointed home office, formerly the spare bedroom. And it's a really different work environment for me because I'm actually much more comfortable on the bridge of a ship or on some remote posting doing humanitarian logistics. But since March, I've been working from home, um, monitoring activities in the Pacific, looking at shipping activities and the impact of COVID-19 on those very maritime dependent communities. And how have you found that change uh, coming from the front line of humanitarian work and environmental activism and now sitting at a desk doing an important job nonetheless? How have you found that personally, that big shift? Um, it is difficult to be so distant from the beneficiaries and it's hard to imagine really that me sitting here in Tasmania with a view of a snow-covered mountain is really helping to ensure that things um, are monitored and running smoothly in Pacific Island nations rather than being in a port in a remote area or being on a ship delivering goods. It, it's a little bit of a disempowering feeling, but I think that it's also a lesson in how adaptable we are and how we simply have to make changes to accommodate the fact that we're in the grip of a global pandemic. Fantastic. And um, Madeline, I mean, how um, how have you actually seen that that play out in inside these maritime communities? I mean, um, two questions from from me. Perhaps if you can just start by explaining to us what um, actually makes up a maritime community that you would actually um, support in terms of humanitarian aid. But then also, what are what are some of the impacts? I mean, I think we're all quite well aware in terms of the impact that it's had on us here directly in Australia. But in your experience, how is COVID actually playing out in some of these communities? And Pacific Island nations are almost entirely dependent on seafaring trade to get their essential goods. Most of the islands uh, are not self-sufficient and they rely on maritime trade to bring the goods into their communities. And they have been extremely successful in the whole in avoiding impact from COVID-19 in their communities. So while they don't most of the island nations don't have active cases. What they do have is interruption to their supply chain. And initially, in the early months of the pandemic, this was, was really causing a big impact in their local um, food supply and overall supply chain for their communities as they introduced different kinds of quarantine rules and shipping schedules were really thrown on their ear. Fortunately, that has really stabilised now and um, the nations have worked really regionally together to try and stabilise the supply chain. And shipping, fortunately, is a reasonably responsive industry in that um, you can add another vessel or remove a vessel from a schedule or change a schedule to a certain extent to accommodate the needs of the population. The other aspect of a maritime community are the people who actually work on the ships and COVID-19 has had a massive impact on the maritime industry. Um, generally, people are working um, rotations or swings, however you want to call it, where you work a certain number of months on board and then you have more or less an equal number of months on shore. 
but right. with COVID-19, people simply haven't been able to get off their ships or on their ships because of the quarantine restrictions at the ports of call. Right. So is, how does that, um, how's that actually working for them? Are they literally stuck at sea, Madeline? Is that, is that what's occurring? It is, to a certain extent, another aspect of the humanitarian crisis that we're facing is that faced by seafarers where many of them have been on board ships for more than one year without the ability to get off and end their contract. And at the same time, a lot of seafarers do come from countries with fairly vulnerable economies, and that that has a double impact where they may be tempted to accept poorer conditions because at least they have a job. And also they know that if they go home, the chances of them getting back on another vessel are um, reduced. So there's a lot of fear around job security and people are spending incredibly long times at sea with no shore leave and really long times away from their family, which causes a huge emotional and social impact on seafarers, which certainly has an impact on safety at sea. Hmm. Um, can you give us an insight into exactly what you're, what you're doing in your role is? I got a little snippet of it, but day to day, what is your routine at the moment? Well, it's a little bit humdrum, to be honest, especially compared to my normal work lifestyle. So it's, it's, um, I'm in tune with the Pacific time. So I operate on Fiji time, which means I'm start work at six o'clock in the morning, Tasmanian time. And I um, am in contact with various Pacific Island nations, shipping companies, um, governments, emergency response units, just to see that all of the island nations are receiving the services that they require. So it's, it's more or less a monitoring service rather than actually providing aid to any specific country at this, at this point in time. Hmm. However, I think we're all aware that the pandemic is far from over and we do need to establish the groundwork now for um, what might happen as the situation unfolds. And what can you see from someone who has worked on the front line for so long, 25 plus years, do you see it playing out once we're sort of a year, two years deep into it? Well, there's no doubt that it's the poor people and the people at the end of the supply chain who will suffer the most. I think that goes for pretty much anything bad that happens in the world. It's the poor people who suffer most. And we can see that happening already in Africa where food security is becoming even more fragile. And we can see that the World Food Programme, David Beasley, the Executive Director of World Food Programme, has said that we can expect huge increases in the number of people facing famine and and world hunger. Mm, it's yeah. grim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also having a big impact on another issue that I've worked on, which is migration, mm. where people, when they are in a really vulnerable situation in their home, the unnatural human instinct is to migrate where we have a better chance of survival. And COVID-19 is is really blocking a lot of the potential travel routes and where I have worked previously in migrant rescue in the Mediterranean, now it's facing a 
completely additional layer of complications for people who are trying to flee from Africa and looking for a better life in Europe. Now, not only do they have to make the arduous journey from their home country, they have to survive, quite likely, detention in Libya, then get into an unseaworthy boat with the hope of being rescued by somebody, an NGO most likely, and then to be allowed into Europe and face the complications of quarantine there. And right now, the European Union, and Italy in particular, has really clamped down on migrant rescue vessels, and most of them are detained in ports at the moment and not able to conduct rescues. And, and people would still be getting out of, um, say, Libya or trying to exit out of Libya at, at the moment? Absolutely. Mm. And this time of year is actually when you do expect the highest number of um, of people departing from Libya. It's the summer season in the Mediterranean. And so now up until October, you can expect to have really high numbers of people attempting to leave from Libya to cross the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And while the story is not making frontline news, right now it's very difficult to make frontline news mm-hmm. if it's not COVID-related. Yeah, and it, it feels like that, Madeline, doesn't it? That there's there's so many um, there's so many kind of cascading effects that are coming from from this virus that you know we're really kind of we're dealing with it here and now, and it's very um, approximate to to where you live in terms of actually how you experience it. But as you're saying, it's you know from kind of what it's actually causing from a supply chain um, issue all the way through to kind of actually stopping any any type of movement, really, whether that's a good people and kind of, you know, that even kind of the exchange of ideas is, is actually grinding to a halt in, in some respects. Um, you know, Absolutely, you- and I'm glad you touched on that, the exchange of ideas, because I do feel that um, with with the global pandemic, one thing that we can lose is is our freedom to exchange information and to exchange ideas and how quickly we do sacrifice our freedoms um, for the right reasons, for you know, for the betterment of all. But we have to be careful also to watch how many freedoms we do give away and how we get yeah. them back. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and Madeline, I think it's part of kind of, you know, um, trying to kind of keep the exchange of ideas alive. I mean, one, one thing I, I, you know, I'd love for you to share with the listeners is kind of what actually brought you into, into doing what you, what you do to begin with. So if you can kind of take us back to the very um, start of your journey, just curious as kind of what, um, what has actually brought you to kind of working inside, kind of you know, helping support maritime communities around the world and the various different things that that actually presents? Well, it wasn't a particularly direct route. Um, I... I, I think that, that I'm basically an environmental activist and that's where my heart really lies. And I did for many years work on Greenpeace ships Well, and I'm also a seafarer. And I, I reached my kind of dream of working on Greenpeace ships and for many years I was an environmental campaigner on board Greenpeace ships as a ship's crew and as a, as a captain with Greenpeace. And then I was sort of um, also looking at humanitarian aid as well and and thinking you know what else can I do in the world is this really the most effective use of of my time on earth and the skills that I have and I started working for MSF Médecins Sans Frontières or Doctors Without Borders as it is in English and um, and I was actually working on a medical ship in Papua New Guinea 
when I heard about the Mediterranean migrant crisis and the fact that MSF was going to have a ship that was, would be working in the Mediterranean rescuing people. Now, I'm Madeline Habib. Clearly, I also come from a migrant background, as in fact we all do. Um, my father migrated from Egypt to England in the 1960s. And that, that freedom of movement and that stateless moment in people's lives, it's, it's something that I feel like it's, it's such a human vulnerability and it's so much part of our shared story. I thought, okay, here I can be maritime, humanitarian, that's where I want to go. And through my experiences of working in migrant rescue in the Mediterranean, I realized that there is actually quite a big gap between the humanitarian and the maritime sectors. And I figured that that's where I want to put my skills and that's where I see myself in the future, um, trying to address that gap and the need that is there. Fantastic. Um, Madeline, as, as kind of as, as part of all of that, I mean, you've, you've been in, involved in two significant organizations in terms of kind of Greenpeace as well as kind of um, MSF in terms of the, the work that they actually actually do. I mean, can you, can you talk to us a bit about the kind of um, your, um, your take on the actual importance of, of organizations like Greenpeace as well as MSF who are broadly self-sufficient and self-funding, but they clearly actually stand for um, you know, a, an ethos and an ethic, and they actually provide a significant um, service that I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand. Well, I think that non-government organizations are a really important part of our society, and the fact that they can operate and maneuver without government influence and to speak out against governments is really important. And MSF and Greenpeace, they are enormous multinational NGOs and as such they are quite labyrinthical um, and not terribly manoeuvrable organisations just because of the size of them and the fact that even though they are independent, they are reliant on donors' money so they are always conscious of the fact that their actions will determine their budget for the future. And so I'm, I also really believe in the power of the individual to enact change. And I think that it's really important that we should feel confident with our own voices and that we shouldn't think that we need to be part of a large organization in order to have a voice and in order to say something that we think is unjust or... or um, it's a marvelously empowering feeling to speak up with your own voice without having to answer to any organization at all. While at the same time, when you are part of a large organization, you do have the skill set and the budget and all of the equipment to carry out some really amazing operations. But I think as individuals, we should never underestimate the power of our own voice. You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production, a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. If you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you.
Now back to our conversations. And on that note, Madeline, you've been, um, I suppose, in the NGO space for, for quite some time. Have you seen it change? Has it gone from a, a volunteer space into quite an, an industry-dominated space and quite big in terms of the organisations that operate within on a global scale and to a national scale? Or has it stayed relatively the same? Well, you know, with the passage of time, everything in our society has changed. I was just <laughs> just was looking at a picture of a of a Greenpeace worker on a Greenpeace ship back in the 1990s, standing there with a pair of flip flops and just wearing a pair of shorts and and um, one welding glove and a welding mask on doing some welding. And, you know, that, that simply wouldn't happen today, but it wouldn't happen anywhere today. Mm. And and our whole culture around work has really changed. And I do believe that there is definitely, if you're going to work for an NGO, there's no reason that you shouldn't also receive um, superannuation and have paid maternity leave and those kinds of things just because you're doing something that benefits the greater community doesn't mean that you should, don't have the same rights as other workers I, I do think that volunteerism is a really important um, concept and one that we should encourage and I, I really always feel sad when I hear people say that they're just a volunteer because actually it's such a purity of spirit that brings people to volunteering where you're not driven by the money or the security. You're doing it because it's actually something you believe in and that you passionately give freely of yourself to do. So when we say just volunteer, it's very demeaning to the mm. act of volunteering, I think. And on um, that... Go I, ahead. On that note, Medellin, I just had a... We had a conversation a week ago and I was hoping you could just share that story again that you shared with me on a very grassroots level and just talking about on an individual level then meeting a collective a small collective and how resourceful that collective was i think you're working in a kitchen down in tasmania trying to give some of your time and how that group went about problem solving um to try and stop logging of a tasmanian wild forest that's true that was that's a really beautiful story from my very first visit to tasmania um in the late 90s and um, we were at Mother Cummings which was a threatened logging coop and so a, a group of people had come together to fight there somebody had volunteered that we could camp on their land we were making food from donated food whether it was dumpster dived or just somebody dropping off a sack of potatoes or whatever and I was helping out in the kitchen and we were having our evening circle talking about what kind of activities we could do for the next day and somebody came up with the idea that they had a car I was like oh great a car well we could definitely use a car in an action we could do something we could block a bridge blah 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 and then he said well actually you know the car is it's broken down that also wasn't seen as unsurmountable we could get the car going we we could we could manage that we could push it if we have to or tow it or whatever and then he said oh and it's at my ex girlfriend's house and her new partner I have a problem with him but none of these things was too much of a problem and so it's it's just that spirit of volunteering where you have the tiniest little advantage this broken down car in someone else's house and how you can use that 
And then even when it came to locking on to the car so that it couldn't be moved, <clears throat> we realized that we didn't have any locking devices. And we ended up just using pieces of wood holding onto them with a blanket over the top so they looked like locking devices. And we managed to block the road for quite some time. And I, I think that spirit of the possible is something that we really need to hold on to and something in really trying times. They're really good stories to remember of what we can do when a group of committed people come together. Yeah, and, and Madeline, where, where do you see that in, in society today? So, I mean, do you think the spirit of um, volunteerism is, is under threat, or do you think it's, it has a renewed emphasis behind it, or somewhere in between? Um, it's hard to speak for society in general, and as I'm into reaching, you know, middle age and midlife and everything, the people who surround me are probably less inclined to devote themselves to that kind of activity but that's why I have really enjoyed working with organizations such as Sea Watch and Sea Shepherd where it is a much younger kind of more radical crowd and that that um, spirit of volunteerism and dedication to greater causes is definitely still there and I really do appreciate that and it does give me hope and I, I get invigorated by their enthusiasm as well so I do like working in those kind of groups and they challenge my ideas and my kind of the kind of conservatism that grows inside you as you age and so I like to be re-radicalized and and I also look forward to the fact that um, one thing that we do have as we get older and retire is we do have more time as well and so looking forward to those years when it will be possible to be purely a volunteer again for the things that I really believe are important. Well, it seems like you, you, give, you give yourself a hard time, Madeline. Um, earlier this year, you were turning up the heat on the government and focusing attention to Prime Minister Scott Morrison when he pay, posted on your Facebook po page holding a banner saying, ScoMo, call or ice. Now, for anyone doing that, it might have not got as much traction as as you did because you were on a government-owned boat. Can you talk us through what happened then and how you prepared that? Was it a spontaneous act or was it an act that um, had a lot of thought and planning behind it? Well, I wouldn't say it had a lot of thought and planning behind it, but definitely my intention um, is to be more involved in climate change campaigning. Um COVID-19 has sort of changed my trajectory a little bit at the moment, but I certainly haven't abandoned that. And I am concerned about the future of Antarctica. And Australia, with our claim of 40% of Antarctica, definitely has a responsibility to care for that place. And I am concerned about the expansion of the coal industry in Australia. And at that time... Um, when the Adani mine was receiving um, permission to go ahead, I really did want to call out to the Australian government from Antarctica and say, hey, you know, if we keep going on with coal mining, we're going to lose Antarctica. And when I say we, it, it's not a human thing for us to own anyway. It's it's the planet that we live on. We we have a custodian role here. It's Even the concept of resources is... Is, um, is so wrong as if everything exists just for humans to use. 
So what we should be doing is caring for our planet rather than pillaging our planet. And so, yes, I had prepared that in advance. And just to be clear, nobody actually saw that banner in real life. It was just that I posted it quite discreetly and it was only when I was asked to take it down mm. and I made additional um, comments about not being a quiet Australian that it really got traction and people sort of said, yeah, well, you know, we should have the right to protest and you should be able to raise your voice about this. And most people don't know what's happening in Antarctica and the threats that it faces because it does seem so far away. So I haven't abandoned the project. It's just on the on hold. I don't like to use back burner because that doesn't seem very sustainable. No, I could, I, I could <laughs> hear you catch yourself there. I was very <laughs> tactful the way you went about that in terms of adding your... Um, extra comment and the way it did get um, traction especially was it it was done around the bushfires that happened in um, Australia this summer wasn't it? Absolutely it it coincided with that and I really think that um, at that time we were being led by a a government that was insensitive to the response of the community and the idea that um, that we should be quiet Australians is really abhorrent because we have every right to speak up for what we believe in. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the, the other part, Madeline, I'm, I'm really interested in, in kind of the, those types of forms of protest is that what what it kind of, it, you know, we live in a world now where we do share kind of ideas through through social media, but I'm quite interested in getting your take on the knowledge that, that goes with it, because I, I do think, I mean, if people understood um, the role of Antarctica in terms of that it's not just this far away white place, it's actually integral to life on Earth, right? The currents that actually are basically cool our planet um, all start in Antarctica. And without that, you know, our planet will, um, you know, be on fire, like in terms of actually how it comes through. So it's, I'm curious about how, um, in your mind, we can kind of actually draw people closer um, to, to areas like Antarctica and allow them to actually um, understand why it's so important that it's not just melting ice that's going to affect a few penguins. It's actually going to affect us all. It is difficult, and I I don't think that the answer is encouraging tourism to those places because I think there's a perfectly good reason that humans have never had a permanent settlement in Antarctica, and that is that it's not a place where humans should be. Um, I think that concepts like climate change need to be really incorporated into our education system and it, it's a it's a life skill it's a living skill to be able to live in harmony with the with the planet that we have to live on and how we're going to have to adapt to it so concepts like sustainability climate change adaptation um, they're all concepts that need to be brought into the education system but it has to happen really quickly and there has to be a will for that. It's very easy to be distracted by kind of skittish, trivial things on social media, and it takes much more effort to read a scientific journal um, about Antarctica. And yes, we can be charmed by images of penguins, but it's also difficult to understand the risks that we face. So it's difficult to grab the attention of the population because um, we are very easily distracted by fast-moving, shiny things, um, and that's very much what social media is. Great, great. 
and the, the change in change in language as well. This is the last question for me, Madeline. Is that um, you know I'm, I'm quite taken by you know when you talk about kind of that you know this this notion of resources or that this human concept of kind of you know conquering conquering the world so to speak. Whereas you know a lot of lot of the language shift in terms of kind of that that needs to come through is as you said, it's actually it's a life skill to be able to actually live in harmony with with our planet and understanding that. So if you were to kind of actually start to teach. Um, you know, kids um, at a at a younger age about kind of actually what that means to live harmoniously. What would you what you what would you be stressing to them? What concepts would they have to challenge in their generation? Well, I I think that there needs to be a lot more time spent outdoors and appreciation for outdoors because if you're not in touch with the natural environment, it's it's very difficult to value it. it it's only there is an inconvenience or a backdrop to your Instagram photo and that's not a very real relationship with nature. Um, I also, I really struggle with the number of people that we have on the planet and the fact is that um, it's very difficult for, for us to have a relationship with nature. If you live in a huge city in South Korea, for example, your relationship with nature will be very strained. There are no green areas. There's no place for you to take off your shoes and walk on the grass. So I can't really answer that question very clearly, but I do think that, that the language around it and and our success measures as well, where um, our success measures need to be more about how how we live in harmony rather than how we dominate. Yeah. Thank you. I just had one last question for you as well, Madeline. I was hoping to hear your perspective on or your hopes for some positive change to come out of this global pandemic. Can you see anything on your imaginary horizon that that could possibly um, bring a positive change to the way we interact with nature as, as a global populace and our relationship developing in a meaningful way? Um. I don't know on a global scale if I, if I can answer that. What I can see in Tasmania is um, an appreciation for what we have here. And I, I recognize that we are extremely fortunate that we do have the chance to get out and to enjoy our environment. But historically in winter, Tasmanians leave and they go somewhere else if they have any chance. And, you know, I'm one of them. I would normally be on a ship at this time of year and not in Tasmania looking out the window at the snow on the mountain and not appreciating um, the early spring blossoms and those kind of things. And people are celebrating what they have and looking a little bit closer. And I think that's a really positive thing. But I'm not so naive to imagine that as soon as international flights are available again, that we will go back to our mad frenzy of flying around all over the world. Because... We did enjoy it. We liked that. We considered that a freedom. And while it came at a cost to the environment, I don't know how ready we are to give that up. So I temper my my vision of the future with a real reality check that, that we really do consider those things freedoms that we deserve. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time and your honest insight. It's It's great to hear... Um, you speak openly and freely to us and give us insight into the life that you live. So appreciate that. 
Thank you very much, and I really appreciate being asked to be part of Business Not As Usual. It's a very um, interesting concept. Thank you. Thank you for listening to BAU, Business As Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's B-A-U-P-O-D-C-O.